In February 1870, so that's about 150 years ago, the French painter Edouard Manet flew into a fit of rage after reading a negative review by his longtime friend, the critic Edmond Jurantie. French uh, GCSEs that I got a C in have come in useful. The artist stormed into the Paris Café Jeubois, slapped Jurantie in the face and challenged him to a sword duel. According to police reports, the men faced each other on the 23rd of February in the forest of Saint-Germain. The adversary's swords allegedly struck only once, but with such force that both blades buckled. When Juhanti sustained a minor wound, Manet declared his honor sufficiently defended. And before long, the two Parisians had patched up their relationship and once again were sharing meals together at the Jeubois. Jewels, dueling, even as, as close as 1870 in our history, dueling was a recognized way to settle disputes as petty as one bloke who's an artist gets offended by another bloke who doesn't like it. The only way to, to deal with this is to get physical. And it would be to settle kind of the kind of disputes around gambling, around personal offenses, around political offenses. Even very famous politicians, American presidents, would get involved in, in dueling over their honor. And this is something that arose out of the medieval era. Um, but it wasn't intended to be a brawl. It was reserved for the elite. Uh, the elite classes, um, if their honor was, was insulted and there was a loggerhead and there was, no, um, there was no resolution, they would both take to some kind of pistol duel or a sword duel. Um, in fact, this, this, the, the code of dueling was actually ratified in, in an Irish dueling code and said, any wound sufficient to agitate the nerves and necessarily make the handshake must end the business for that day. Seems pretty bizarre to, to think that that would be what people uh, resort to when it comes over petty differences. Um, but it was all about being enough to assert your dominance. Obviously, it wasn't about who was right and who was wrong. That, had just, that is no longer relevant now. It was now about honor, and it was now about dominance. It was now about authority. And the modern-day equivalent, you might suppose, would be social media. So I might say to Rob, the Beatles were clearly the greatest band in history. And Rob might say, Rolling Stones, obviously. Yeah, the greatest band in history. And, and we would clash like this, and, and we'd take to social media, and it'd become the biggest Twitter spat, um, and all the news agencies would be reporting it. And that's how we would defend each other's honor. And the only way I could get dominance over Rob would be to say something so witty that he didn't have a defense. That's, that's, uh, that's the modern-day equivalent. And so we continue... Um, are reading through Acts 19, um, well, through Acts and through um, our, our sermon series about missional living, um, and we come to Acts 19, and we see that God himself uses jewels. He uses showdowns. He sets up these situations where there must be some kind of winner. And we see this, this cosmic um, battle between good and evil playing out all throughout the Bible, and God uses them to advance his kingdom, to assert his sovereignty, and to encourage his people, to give them courage. 
And so what we see all throughout the Bible is that God sets up these showdowns in front of crowds, in front of witnesses, in front of large gatherings. And God's people and us today, it's like we've got ringside seats to the greatest battle going on that's ever been and ever will be between good and evil. And that's what it means to live a missional life, is, to, is that we have ringside seats. We can smell the sweat of those in the ring. Um, we are so close to the action, we can touch it, and God actually uses us for his purposes. So Acts 19, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, we see Paul continuing his missionary journey, and he ends up in Ephesus. He encounters some disciples of John the Baptist. Um, they've heard of the baptism of repentance from John, but they've got no idea about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, so Paul asks them, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? No, we've never heard of this. He baptizes them in the Holy Spirit. It seems to be that that is Paul's common pattern. He'll turn up into a town or a village, ask if they've heard about the Holy Spirit, baptize them in the Holy Spirit, giving them the power that he has um, for the gospel to spread. And what I want us to do this morning is to hone in on verses 11 to 20, because I think there's something in here um, that if you just read through quickly, you'll miss. But there are some really important lessons for us, and I think God is wanting us to slow down a bit um, and take something from them this morning. So from verses 11 to 20, it should be up behind me, if uh, the technology allows this morning. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, this is a very simple point, but obviously it's God doing the miracles through Paul. Paul had become known um, amongst the community, the people, places where he was traveling, as someone who was performing miracles by the, through God. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Now that should be absolutely astounding for us, that Paul, it's almost as if Paul is just dripping with the Holy Spirit. He is, he is just dripping with the Holy Spirit so that people would come and bring some kind of physical material with them, place it on him, maybe without him even knowing, take them away. The presence is so strong, they take it to someone who has an evil spirit or has some kind of disease, and that presence is so strong that it, that it heals them of that disease or the evil spirit leaves them. That is incredible power, and that should make us really stop and wonder what is going on here? What is God doing through this? And I had, to, I had to, to get my head around this. I had to turn to a commentary to understand. And the commentary says these were not magical objects. These were just pieces of material that people might have available. But rather, the Holy Spirit was pleased to manifest his powerful presence so strongly through Paul the Spirit's presence sometimes remained evident in connection with objects that Paul had touched. Now, Paul was operating at such a level of faith and obedience, the Holy Spirit was pleased to manifest himself through things that touched him. Now, Paul is not, Paul by his own, his own admission is not a, a, a superhero Christian. He's just the one that God is using at the time and he is practicing obedience and faith. All of this is available to us. It might seem hard to believe, but I know someone um, from a previous church, another guy called Joe. Um, and I'd known him for a few years before he became a Christian. He, 
He hung around Christians quite a lot. His parents were Christians, but he'd never made that decision, and he seemed the least likely person to end up in this kind of situation. But when he gave his life to Christ, it was all so real and new to him. His faith was so high, he just took God at his word and thought, okay, well, if these people are uh, uh, laying hands on people and seeing um, limbs grow, they're seeing um, people's um, buckled knees being restored, people's spirits leaving people. Why can't we do it? Let's just try it. Let's take God at his word. Um, And so the most unlikely candidate for this started operating at this amazing level where he was regularly having encounters where the Holy Spirit was touching people through him just because of his obedience, just because he had faith to do it. There was no obstacles in his mind why this would happen. And sometimes that tends to be the way, and we have to work hard to recapture that, those of us who are perhaps more seasoned Christians. But the, the, one, the one story that really struck out in my mind was he, he, Joe was a gardener, um, and so he regularly spent time outside. He regularly bumped into people, members of the public, and he was working on a garden, and he saw a guy walking past the garden who maybe had crutches or was limping, who had some kind of obvious issue with their, with their legs or their limbs. Um, so he thought, okay, might be an opportunity. Struck up a conversation with them. Um, offered to pray for them, for healing. Um, and the guy politely declined. So he thought, okay, I'm not going to push myself on him. So the conversation came to a natural end. He said, it was nice to meet you. Um, you know, have a good day. Shook his hand. When they shook hands, he just prayed internally, God, heal this man. And he did. And I just think that's, that's amazing because, because this is a very new Christian. He's not an expert. He's not been to Bible college. He's not done seminars in, in healing. He's just taking God at his word. The least likely candidate that I think of um, to be working at this level, but, but doing the same kind of things that Paul was doing. And it's amazing. This is available to you and me. Let's carry on reading. Then some of the itinerant basically means traveling, Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke or call upon the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, of course, they know the Son of God. And Paul I recognize, Paul had become infamous to even to evil spirits. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Again, another within the same few chapters, the same few paragraphs, two incredible stories about what the Holy Spirit was doing in the early days of the church. And I think there are three points to take out of this little section. The first one is it didn't work just to invoke Jesus' name. It's not just a formula that anyone can get. So these traveling Jewish exorcists must have heard about what was going on and thought, well, let's just try this. It seems to work for Paul. Let's just try and cast evil spirits out of people in the name of Jesus. But what we see is true faith in Jesus is essential. Having the Holy Spirit living inside you is essential. Um, And that they recognize, the demons recognize Paul through his activities, and he had authority in that situation. The second thing to notice is the incredible power of the possessed men. Remember, this is seven men against one man, managed to overpower them, 
to the point where this man, filled with an evil spirit, stripped them naked and they ran away humiliated. Some kind of reverse exorcism took place. They came to exorcise the demon out of them, but the demon exorcised them out of the situation and they flee uh, naked. Incredible, incredible story. This is something we could very easily just read past and just not recognize what amazing things are going on. And the last thing is that as a result of all this, it says the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. News spread and Jesus was glorified. Amazing to think that the evil spirit knew about Jesus and they knew what Paul was doing through the name of Jesus. That there was a connection there between Paul, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, and that was having impacts. Carrying on, um, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So 50,000 pieces of silver in today's money is about four and a half million pounds. So the community, impressed by what they'd heard, this story about these exorcists, these Jewish exorcists fleeing naked and wounded, this story spread so much that those who had become believers came and recognized that their magic arts, their sorcery, had no authority, had no power, were nothing compared to the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. So they came and burnt their treasured possessions to the cost of four and a half million pounds. You have to ask yourself, why, why did they count them? What was the impulse there for them to decide to count them and count up the total collection? Well, I think they're making a public spectacle of their decision to put Jesus Christ above any other supernatural power. And they're affirming their commitment to Christ. And the other thing that they did is they divulged their practices. So they confessed all the, all the rebellion that they had done, all the evil things that they'd got involved in. They decided to confess them in a public setting. A true encounter with Jesus Christ brings total freedom to confess our sins in a corporate situation. Now, we live in a stiff upper lip kind of country where, you know, it's not really the done thing to, to recognize your weaknesses, your sins, um, any of the, the, the wrong things that you might have been doing recently or in the past even. You may just want to cover those over because your public reputation is obviously so important. That's, that's the society we live in. But a true encounter with Jesus Christ brings freedom to confess sins. Why does it bring freedom to confess sins? Because when you've encountered Jesus, you know that the God of the universe knows everything about you, knows every single thing that you did, but loves you so much regardless that he sends his son to die on a cross for you. That's why Tim Keller, one of my favorite preachers, says that the only one who knows you to the bottom, knows you to the very depths of who you are, loves you to the sky. That brings total freedom and liberation. And this is what we're seeing uh, in the early church in Acts 19 is this public spectacle of, I don't mind what these people think of me. I don't really care um, if they know that this is the stuff that I got involved in because Jesus has saved me and I'm a new creation. 
Wouldn't it be amazing if we experienced that kind of corporate confession as a church? And what I, what I really like to, as someone who works in communications and marketing, I really appreciate the PR turnaround that, that results from this. On, in all intents and purposes, on the surface level, you would look at that, that situation and see the devil, the demons, and the evil spirit that's in this man is so strong that invoking the name of Jesus just has no power. And you might conclude, the local news media might have concluded, well, you know, obviously this is one nil to the evil spirit. But, but not so. This defeat, or apparent defeat, is not a defeat, and God uses it for his glory, and the gospel advances. That is one situation, that is one obvious example of where God has set up a jewel. Um, God using a showdown. He builds these platforms to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate his power in such an extent where he alone gets the glory and he alone gets the victory. And we see this all throughout the Bible, like I've said. And in the Old Testament, we see it in Exodus, uh, Exodus 7. In Exodus 7, um, Moses is campaigning with Pharaoh to let Israel go. Israel had been slaves. Um, so Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron, Prove yourself, prove that you are a messenger of God, that this is a message from God that I need to listen to by working a miracle. So uh, Aaron, Moses' brother, casts down his staff. We know this story, don't we? It's very told all the time. He casts down his staff. This staff turns into a snake. Amazing miracle, amazing. But what happens next is what we should really uh, pay attention to. Pharaoh's wise men and sorcerers, they too take a staff, They're not from God. They're just wise men and sorcerers. They're using some kind of power, but it's not power from God. They cast down their staffs, and they too turn into snakes. So it's like, it's one all, basically, in this situation. They've they've done 90 minutes of full time. They've done 30 minutes of extra time. It's time for a penalty shootout. Well, they've done five sets. They've battled for hours on the tennis court. It's five sets, time for a tie break. uh, They've wrestled for hours. Neither one can get a breakthrough, so it's time for a thumb war. What happens? Well, uh, Aaron's staff, or snake as it now is, gobbles up the other staff and snake, demonstrating that although Pharaoh's wise men and sorcerers had uh, power, they truly had power to turn a... I've never seen that before, to turn a staff into a snake... They did not have mastery or authority over it. Only those who come in the name of the Most High have that authority. We see this again in 1 Kings 18, where Elijah calls down fire. Another very famous story. Ahab was king of Israel at the time. Uh, He was the worst king in a long succession of bad kings for Israel since the days of Solomon. Um, And so God raises up Elijah as his prophet to confront him. And Elijah announces that there's going to be a drought. That gets the king's attention. Um, So God is setting the stage. You see this very carefully. This is what God is doing all the time, setting stages so that he can come in and prove his, his, his glory in this situation. So Elijah proposes a jewel. Where did I put my water? Is it here? Elijah um, proposes... A jewel, your God against my God. Bring a bull, a sacrifice, and ask your God, set it on an altar, and ask your God to send fire. 
So they took up the ball. So these were, um, these must have been Ahab's, um, what were they there, right-hand men with their, with their, their um, worship of Baal. They took the bull that was given to them, prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal. So Baal was their idol. That was their god. It was not the god of Israel. Even though the king of Israel um, was Ahab, he did not um, believe in the god of Israel. They had turned to an idol, Baal. They took the bull that was given to them, prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered Elijah mocks them. So confident is Elijah that he's pretty much celebrating early. The ball has not crossed the line into the goal and he is off celebrating early because he has so much trust and faith in God that he is willing to mock them. So Elijah prepares his altar and says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Proving that Baal is just an idol, just an invention of the mind. But God, the God of Israel, was the true power in the universe. So we see this over and over again, God setting up these situations where he can come in and and demonstrate his glory. And this is what it's like for us now today. There's no different. And what we see going on is there's this fight in the air going on in the heavenly realms, and there's a fight on the ground going on. So this is what we see even in modern warfare. Go back to the great world wars of the 20th century, the First World War and the Second World War. There would be air fights going on, dog fights going on, um, all kinds of action going on in the air, and then on the ground you see people, troops on the ground in the trenches and people driving tanks, and there'd be an air fight and a ground fight. But the good news is, Jesus wins. It's very easy to look at the world around us, especially in light of the events this week, to just to wonder what is going to be the outcome of the world at the moment. It feels like the world is on fire. But we can have trust and hope that Jesus ultimately wins. We know the end of the story, thankfully, because it's been recorded for us. When I was at school, um, my school was, I, had, I went to quite a small uh, school in my middle school. Um, therefore, it wasn't very hard to get into the cricket team, the school cricket team, which meant I was in the cricket team. Um, and I enjoyed being a part, of, I mean, it's quite a pleasant sport to play, isn't it, being out in the sunshine. In, in, so I enjoyed fielding, as long as the ball didn't come near me. I uh, didn't mind having a go at bowling. There's not much pressure. Bowling's quite hard, isn't it? If you don't get it right, never mind. But batting, I did not like the thought of someone um, running down the crease as fast as they can and throwing the ball at me as fast as they could. And I'm there with my wobbly knees and a bat. Um, I, did not like, I did not like that side of it. So it was a relief to me when, I, when on our cricket team in our school, we had Dan Walsh. Daniel Walsh, he was our secret weapon. He would go into bat first, and he would stay in bat the whole game and win us every single match, and we won the Dorset Cup. I won the Dorset Cup. And I would, just, I would be 12th, 
Is that, is that the last one in the batting order? I'd be the last in the batting order every single time, and I was pretty confident I could just relax. I didn't, I didn't really need to warm up or anything. I could probably just have a little uh, nap or something, wake up, find out that we'd won. Um, that was my, that was my uh, extent of batting skills. Um, why am I telling you this? The, the point is, just like Dan Walsh got us victory every single time, because we're in Jesus Christ's family, because we're in God's family, we have the victory. And we are work, even though we're in his team, and even though he really does all the work, we get to participate, and we get the medal. And his victory is our victory. And this is where the gospel is so important. This is where it's so important to have a good understanding of what really took place on the cross when Jesus Christ offered up his life. So through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see that Jesus clears the way for the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us, enabling us to go and work and do the work and to be enlisted in God's army. So on the cross, Jesus, we know that Jesus took our punishment, don't we? We talk about that all the time. Jesus took the wrath for us. Our sins were nailed on him and we were forgiven. But for someone to have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, they need to be holy. Not just forgiven, they need to be holy. And what happens, and we don't often talk about this, but what also happened on the cross is that God transferred Jesus' righteousness to us. So we're no longer just forgiven. We're no longer just not debtors. We're no longer just our, our account is not just brought up to zero and we start again, but we are creditors. We are righteous. So an exchange happens. Our sin onto Jesus. Jesus' righteousness onto us. That's why God can look at us and call us righteous. And that means that we have a standard of purity that's high enough for the Holy Spirit to come and live in us. This is, this is everything that the cross is all about. So that the power of God can work through us. And when we have the Holy Spirit, he teaches us his word. We can understand his truths. And we also have the power to resist temptation, to practice holiness ourselves. This is what we call the great exchange. And Paul writes about this when he's speaking to the church, uh, the Colossians. He says, And you who were dead, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us. It's like what Mike was saying about the living in the year of Jubilee. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So we've got this fight going on in the air that takes place on the cross, this supernatural fight going on. Jesus has, Jesus has convincingly dealt with the devil on the cross, but we're still here, aren't we? And the devil still has power, and he still does things in the world that we know about. And so to go back to my war analogy, it's a little bit like D-Day, in World War II. Now, historians generally agree that um, D-Day was the tipping point in the war. Basically, it was the beginning, the beginning of the end for Hitler. That if, we, if the American troops and the British troops could successfully land on Normandy, that was basically it. Although, there were still months and months and months of fighting that needed to take place. And that's pretty much what is going on now. Although Jesus dealt conclusively with Satan on the cross, there is still a fight to be fought uh, and the victory still needs to be claimed and that is through all of us. One consistency we see in all of these stories is that God doesn't do it without people. 
He does it through his people, through his church. And this is the ongoing story of the Bible. And this is the purpose of the church. God's strategy through his wisdom is that his salvation plan would be unfolded through his people. And the devil's strategy is to wage war against that. So that means that the moment that you converted, the moment you made a choice to become a Christian and put your trust in Jesus, that means that you were brought into the front lines of this war. And it should concern us if we don't feel any sense of battle, if we don't feel any sense of struggle, if we don't feel any sense of tension. It should concern us if we don't feel that, because that's not what we're here for. And we're going through Acts we're going through the book of Acts to focus on missions. And I want to ask you this morning, church, do you feel like you're on mission? And I want to ask myself that, and I want to examine myself. Am I on mission in every part of my life? Have I committed it towards fulfilling God's plan for this world? Am I using my time and my energy and my opportunities to bring glory to him, to, to talk to the lost about Jesus? Do I use my money in a way that demonstrates to the world that Jesus is priceless and everything else is not? Am I using my opportunities with my neighbors and with my family? Am I on mission with them in that situation? I think these are things we need to honestly reflect on. It's great, we're doing so much activity with the homeless um, and with various outreach things, and there's loads of stuff going on at church. But we need to examine ourselves every now and then and ask ourselves, are we, are we asleep or are we active and ready? And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, he says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? So he's saying, do not worry about things that are temporal. Don't worry about things that are here and now that one day will fade away. Worry about eternal things. He says, the pagans run after all of these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And this is what we see in Acts 19, God's people demonstrating that they're seeking first his kingdom. They burn precious things. These, the, the total of those books, remember, is four and a half million pounds. That's not a small amount of money. And so they're demonstrating we're going to seek God's kingdom first because we trust him that he'll give us these things. And these things are only temporary anyway. And they're displaying amazing power and confidence in God. So how does this chapter, this part of the book of Acts, Acts 19, how does it help us to live missionally? Well, we see these people displaying amazing confidence in God. We saw that through Elijah in his, uh, what would seem like a premature celebration, but he showed amazing confidence in God. And we also see the second thing we see that should help us to live missionally is to know that it's not about human skill to see God's kingdom come, to perform acts of miracles, to see people um, claimed for Jesus. It's not about human knowledge. It's not about having a certain uh, level of theology. And it's not about human effort either. We see the Jewish exorcists thought they could rely on a formula. 
We see Pharaoh thinking he can rely on his riches and his, and his power. And we see Ahab thinking he can rely on his idols. It's not about these things. It's about the God of Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ, who is our God. And so what we see um, in Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus. And uh, we know we have the book of Ephesians, which is written to the church in Ephesus. And at the end of the book of Ephesians, um, Paul creates this really helpful analogy between um, a warrior going into war and all the armor that they need uh, and what it's like being a Christian in this world. And he ends his letter to the church in Ephesus with a rallying cry. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on, so we put it on, doesn't just happen to us, we have to put on the whole armor of God. So when you become a Christian, you are available to you is armor, armory and weaponry, but we have to put it on, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. And then he goes through various uh, inventory of what the, an armor of God is. So he, he talks about the belt of truth. A Roman soldier uh, belt would always hold his sword, would always hold his weapon, so he'd always need a belt. And um, when Roman soldiers or, during, or soldiers at that time um, would go into battle, they would be wearing, obviously be wearing these long flowing robes, as men did in those days, and they would gird up their loins, which means to tuck in their robes under their belt, which made, gave them the opportunity to run and fight and so that they would be mobile. That's what the belt of truth does for us. The truth of God enables us to fight. The breastplate of righteousness. So the breastplate guards the heart. So he's talking about purity. So he's saying, your practice of personal purity enables you to guard your heart um, and prevents your heart from receiving attacks. So our personal holiness is absolutely massive in the battle. We might think it's disconnected between... um, what's going on and and our efforts for evangelism, but it really is connected. If your personal purity is not in a good state, then you will not be effective for Christ. He talks about shoes on our feet, the gospel. This is all about having readiness, a readiness to go into battle, a disposition, all about being ready to go. A shield of faith that will protect us against the devil's attacks. So we have a shield of faith So when we're facing attacks, when we're facing opposition from the devil, we can put up faith in him, in Jesus Christ, and that will extinguish all of the devil's fiery darts. And then he talks about the helmet of salvation, to guard our minds. If you you leave your mind unguarded as a Christian, then the devil will seek that as an opportunity to come in and undermine everything you know and believe about Jesus. And lastly, he talks about the sword of the Spirit, which I just want to bring a little bit of attention to. He says, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. So every single uh, soldier going into battle um, 
takes in a weapon. They may, they may not, I mean, these soldiers these days may not have a helmet going into battle. They may not have a shield. We don't see soldiers with shields these days. They may not take the full defensive armory, but they certainly will take some kind of weapon into, into, into their battle. It would be foolish not to have some kind of weapon in a battle-like scenario. And I think that puts a particular emphasis on the need to, to regularly get into God's word, to understand it so that we can wield it in power. And also in defense as well. The, you know, swords and um, some weapons can also be used as defense. And we see that what Jesus did in the, in the wilderness. When he was led out in the wilderness and tempted by Satan, what did he use every single time he used God's holy scripture. It is written, it is written, it is written. This is how he dealt with the devil. We've got to recognize here that this, this story in Acts 19, there were seven men. I know I've said it before, but seven men against one man with an evil spirit. We are no match against uh, the devil and his schemes. But when we put on the whole armor of God, we are more than capable of fighting back and fighting against him and protecting ourselves. Um, I'd just like to ask the band to come back now, please, um, just while I wrap up. And then he says praying at all times as well. At all times we should be praying. Prayer, I think, can very, be, very easily be misunderstood. Prayer is, not, um, prayer, is, prayer is given to us, an opportunity to speak to God on a regular basis is given to us for people who are in active warfare. That's his primary purpose. It's not just a ding-a-ling-ling, please can you plump up my pillow for me? And ding-a-ling, I'll have some more grapes, please. I want to feel more comfortable. It's not about, that's not what prayer is given to us for. And prayer will not make sense to you if you do not have uh, a battle mindset. Prayer is a direct line for those on the front line, you and me. It's a direct line back to the general to say we need more artillery. We need, send in the tanks, we need help here. Send in some air fire. That's what, that's what prayer is for. And that's why church prayer events, the, the events that Mike does every month are so important because that's what we do when we come together. We pray into um, spiritual matters. We pray into warfare. And Mike, we have to commend Mike because he does such a good job um, at raising attention to them. And we should all be seeking, if we can, to come to those and take part in this. Prayer does not make sense in your life if you're not engaged in some kind of warfare. So, I'd also like to ask the ministry team to come forward as well, please. Because um, I think we have to respond to this. And we have a ministry team like Dave and Christine and some of the other guys. They, they love praying for people. That is, that is their thing. They absolutely love it. So let's not be shy this morning, okay? We, we must recognize that we are all in a battle. And you may be feeling it this morning. You may be feeling some kind of parental battle at the moment. It may feel like hard work to be a parent at the moment. And that could be a, that could be a spiritual thing. It might not, just be, might not just be parenting techniques that can solve the issue. It might be a, some kind of spiritual battle. You may be facing some kind of struggle in your marriage as well. That could have spiritual roots. And we are in a war. And, we, we must, and the devil hates marriage. He hates successful, solid marriages. And we have to get prayer for these things. So I want to encourage you this morning to come forward for prayer. If you feel vulnerable in any way, if you feel like you're not up to it, to being a Christian, to facing the day as a Christian, 
come and get prayer. We cannot, we cannot go into this world. This world is set against us. We cannot go into it without getting prayer and, get, and putting on the whole armor of God. If you feel like you need direction as well, you just, you just you know in your heart deep down you should be doing more. You should be using opportunities more. Or in fact, at one point you were burning bright for God, but that fire has, has kind of has fizzled out. And you, and you know deep down that you should, be, you should be in God's word more. You should be praying more. I want to I encourage you to come and get prayer. Okay, God's grace is big enough to help us in these situations. He loves it when we come to him when we're desperate what I learned from him yeah yeah I'll, I'll, I'll pray as well but God, God loves it when we're desperate for him he doesn't begrudge you if you're desperate for him and I came to a point recently where I was, came to God and I just recognised I, I am desperate for you and I felt slightly ashamed that it was my fault that I was desperate and that may be true I neglected spending time with him but he does not begrudge you when you come back to him you're desperate for him come to him he, he wants to see you he wants to hear from you so we're going to have some ministry time now and some prayer don't be shy and i'll just pray for us um yeah let's let's do some let's do some work with god today heavenly father i i thank you that we know and can trust that your your battle is won ultimately and decisively through Jesus but we all have a part to play and your word shows us that we cannot be asleep in these days we need to have a readiness about ourselves we've got to recognize that we have an enemy we have an adversary who wants to undermine us who wants to accuse us who wants to lie to us who wants to destroy our lives because we've because we're ambassadors for Jesus for the most high and I feel like this is a particular spiritual battle as people is, is coming forward for prayer and, and taking part in, in monthly prayer events. There is a spiritual battle going on there. And Lord, we pray against that. We pray against what the devil wants to do to undermine that. And so Lord, I, I just ask that you speak to us, speak to us as individuals, speak deeply into our hearts this morning and help us to find um, our strength in you go back out into the world with a renewed vigor, a motivation and, and strength and support and, and comfort and courage. Thank you for your word, Lord Jesus. Come.